0: Just before Christmas, a newspaper article came out. Maybe you saw that news story. The guys who down around New Zealand went out from an island there, a little aluminum dinghy with a small motor on it, went out for a little bit of fishing. Motor evidently broke somewhere along the way. Something happened and they began to drift. Well, they spent the next 50 days out in the ocean. They drifted 800 miles from where they left shore. 50 days out in the ocean. Finally, a fishing uh, boat went by, saw them, pulled over, and asked if they needed a little help. And they said, yes, they did. They took them back home. They got them all back home. Here's the deal. They got back home, and they, they, they uh, understood this. Their, their families, after a search had been conducted and they weren't found, their families had held memorial services for all three of them. They considered them dead, gone through the grieving process, Come to terms with the fact that they were gone, and then they were right back there showing up again. Can't imagine, on the one hand, the shock, but also the, the joy, the, uh, the elation to having them back home. Must have been incredible. But I got to wondering about those three guys. After you've been through an experience like that, where essentially you were timed out for 50 days of your life just to think about you and your life and how you've lived it and what you might have done differently. And then you've got a chance to restart. What would you be thinking at that point? What would be your highest priorities in life? And where would you go from there? How would you begin again fresh? Not many of us are going to have that chance to be timed out in that way to really think about it. But we have the opportunity to stop and pause and think about, what if I had a fresh start, what would I do? Beginning of a new calendar year, that's a great time to think about that. In some ways, the calendar is artificial, isn't it? I mean, the days just keep going and going. We lay a calendar over the top of it and say this is the start of a new year. That's a little bit artificial, but, you know, we need that that uh, system. We need that guidance to to order our lives. And so at the beginning of a new year, it's a good time to think about fresh starts. What if you started over? What would be the most important things in your life? What would you do differently? Well, we're going to learn here this month from a book that's about fresh starts. It's the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. Now I invite you to just open your Bible there. You might have to use the index, the table of contents in the front to uh, find it because maybe you haven't been in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament before. I can tell you it's before the Psalms. So you, you can usually find the Psalms kind of there in the middle. Well, we can go to the left. Uh, you, you may run across First and Second Samuel, then First and Second Kings, then First and Second Chronicles. And then right there you have the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. The book of Ezra, it's one of the uh, historical books of the Bible and of the Old Testament in particular. That means that it tells the history of God's interaction with the Hebrew people, his chosen people, uh, his interaction with them during, during a certain period of time in history. Now, many of you perhaps have read or studied in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. That's often a popular book for Bible studies. Great book. What you need to know is that the book of Ezra is actually the companion book to the book of Nehemiah. In fact, if you go back to some of the oldest Hebrew manuscripts, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are are put together essentially into one book. As time went by and the scriptures were copied further, you'll find that in the manuscripts that uh, Ezra was, the book we call Ezra now was called First Ezra and the book of Nehemiah was called Second Ezra. We have them separated today in, in the Bibles that we have, but really they belong very much together. They're companion books. And just because uh, most, more people spend time in the book of Nehemiah doesn't mean that the book of Ezra is any kind of a, a lesser uh, book at all. In fact, it's it's just as strong, just as, as powerful a book. Chronologically, it does tell uh, events written before the book of Nehemiah happened. And when you read the book of Ezra, you're able to understand the book of Nehemiah much better. But But we shouldn't shouldn't just consider, well, Ezra is just the little book before Nehemiah. It's a great book. Here's how it begins. I'm going to jump right in here at chapter 1, verse 1. I'm reading out of the New American Standard translation. It'll be very close to your other versions you have with you if you have a different one. And it says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, So that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." Now every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. book of Ezra we see here actually begins with a proclamation. This is unexpected. Pick up a Bible book, you read a proclamation of a king. And of all things, a king who isn't a worshiper of the one true God, Cyrus, king of Persia. Did you know that he was the undisputed most powerful figure in the civilized world in his day? Think about between, say, 600 and 500 BC in that range. That was the time of Cyrus. He was the uh, most powerful man, the leader of the greatest superpower of that day. Beginning about 539, about the time that he made this uh, proclamation, he ruled over the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire was huge. So you get a, a map of the, of the globe, you know, in your mind. You know, kind of spread it out flat. And you're looking at it. And you see India way over here. And then you're moving westward. And, uh, and you're crossing lands that are in the news quite a bit. And, and you're going across from India this way. And then you're getting into uh, uh, Iran, Iraq. Uh, you're getting into the Middle East. You're going all the way to the Mediterranean with Egypt in the south and Macedonia in the north. That was the extent of the Persian Empire. It was huge. And it was a very powerful, powerful empire. Cyrus was king. In his proclamation, which we just read, he, he tells of the beginning of, uh, of an absolutely uh, stunning turn of events. His proclamation highlighted a great turn of events in history, especially the history of the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people, who at this time... Uh, were originally from the southern portion of the land of Israel, from that area called Judah. They were part of that last remnant of the kingdom of Israel in the area known as Judah. They had some 70 years before this proclamation of Cyrus been overrun by the army of the king of Babylon, a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And he not only overran them, invaded them, he rounded up the people, he deported them en masse from their own land and resettled them in the area known as Babylon, forcibly resettled them. Well, what Cyrus was proclaiming was that at this point in time, he was going to allow these uh, Hebrews to return back to their land to resettle it and specifically, he says, to rebuild the temple of God that was there that had been destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar's army ran through the city. That return and rebuilding was something that was so improbable that most people, very few people, believed it would ever have been possible at all. And that was true because this sort of resettlement of conquered people just really didn't happen in that time, in that place. If you happened to be a conquered people and something like that happened to you, well, you just had to live with it wherever you were, you were probably stuck there for for the rest of your life. Niceness was not a trait of the ancient kings and of the kingdoms that uh, rotated in and out of history. The uh, the leaders typically didn't see any practical value of resettling conquered people. They didn't have that in mind. If a new king A king came along after the the conquering king was done and and took over. Well, he didn't have any interest in going back and correcting something or helping someone that the previous king conquered. Even if the kings wanted to help, resettling entire people groups was a pretty big deal. The way the Israelites, the the Hebrews, got resettled in the first place was because Nebuchadnezzar had a huge army roaming around through the, the territories and he conquered them. And because he had the army there, he could transport everybody back. But getting people back into the, to where they were in the first place, that was a pretty hard thing to do in those days, a huge undertaking, so it just didn't happen. And no one ever expected that these Hebrews would be able to go back to Jerusalem. We know that the Hebrew people, even though they had hints that maybe, maybe they would be able to return someday, even they, with those hints from, from the Bible, from, the, from their prophets, really doubted that they would ever be restored to their land and that the temple would ever be rebuilt. And that was because they knew that the reason they had been conquered was because of their rebellion against God. They had become a a people, a nation, in the first place, only by God's grace. He selected them out and said, Look, I will take you, I will make you a nation, I will give you land, I will give you a place to be, and you will be my special people. God made a covenant with them and said, You will be my special people, You'll have a special relationship with me. I will work through you to reach the whole world and to do what I want to do to make myself known in this world. God said, that's my covenant with you. But your side of the covenant is, if we're going to do this, your side of the covenant is that you need to be totally true to me alone. You need to worship me only. You need to live according to my ways only. Well, the people said they would do that, but then they didn't keep their part of the covenant. Almost from the very beginning, but as time went by, it got worse and worse and worse. And as the years passed, they ignored God, they rejected God, they worshipped false gods, they disobeyed God in numerous ways, and great ways. And so finally, enough was enough, and God withdrew his blessing from the Hebrew people. He withdrew his protection from them. Once that protection was gone, then they were easily defeated and carried away into captivity. Now, when that carrying away into captivity took place, they also looked back and saw a destroyed city. And in that destroyed city, there was the destroyed temple of God. The Babylonians looted the temple first, took all the the furnishings out of it, the valuable things out of it. Then they just destroyed the temple altogether. And because the temple then was the center of worship uh, back in the Old Testament times, and because it was the symbol of the presence of God with his people... When they looked at the temple, they knew that was a sign that God really was dwelling with His, with His, His chosen people because that was a symbol and because that, that temple was also the place where they came to make atonement for sins. In the Old Testament way of, of worship before uh, the time of Christ, the, the sacrifices would be offered at the temple and God said, this is my way of you worshiping me. This is my way of you making atonement for sins. You can make the sacrifice of, of specific animals and I will take that as, a, as an offering. I'll take that as a substitute. And I will bring you forgiveness of your sins individually. And once a year, the whole nation would come and there would be an offering for the nation for the forgiveness of sins. Because that, the, everything revolved around the, the temple and the worship of God. When they looked at the, at the temple destroyed, they looked at that and the Hebrew people said, that's it. I mean, that, that is just the sign that God has done with us for good. Because not only have we been taken away, but the temple of God has been taken away from our land as well. They thought they would never, ever see the temple rebuilt again or be brought back into the land. They had the hints that they might be able to, but, but in, their, in their minds, they said, no, it will never take place. But then out of the blue comes this proclamation from Cyrus, the king of Persia, that they were not only allowed to return to their homeland, they were allowed to rebuild the temple there As well, in fact, Cyrus actually emphasized that, that they should rebuild the temple. And not only did Cyrus allow them to to go back, he encouraged them to do it. And by his proclamation, he paved the way for them to do it as well. I don't know if you noticed there at the beginning, but it said Cyrus sent out a proclamation, which means he sent out messengers who would gather in city squares throughout the empire and make the declaration verbally. But it also says... He had it written. In other words, he had it recorded and put down. So he did everything he could to make it official and well-known that his proclamation was the Hebrews could go back and, uh, and rebuild, uh, resettle and rebuild. And by making that proclamation, Cyrus was essentially telling everybody, stay out of their way. Don't give them any trouble. Lend them a hand because I'm allowing this to happen. Cyrus steps in and, and does this for him if you notice carefully, he actually called upon others who, who weren't going back to support them with whatever they needed to, to get back and, and do the rebuilding. And then as we'll see shortly, even as we read a little further, he even himself gives material support to them. And so suddenly the impossible becomes possible. So you say, why did Cyrus do this? Well, from a human standpoint, he first of all had some political reasons to do it. Uh, he was doing this really out of self-interest is is what we need to understand. Uh, He was doing it because he thought this was good for Cyrus and good for his empire over which he ruled. The, The Persian Empire, as we said, was huge. And Cyrus began to realize that it would be a lot easier to rule in this empire and to manage everything going on if they didn't have to, to keep all of these oppressed people who had been captured and moved in during the Babylonian era, if they didn't have to take care of all of them and watch over them and guard them, and, uh, if, if they took a different track, he thought, with this, if they handled them differently, this would be a lot easier to manage within the, the empire. His thought was, you know, if I let them go back home, they're going to be appreciative of that. I'll be able to provide them a relative peace and security within my empire. And so they'll just settle peaceably, and I won't have to be worrying about them all the time. And they also thought this, that if I can get them to resettle uh, in their their original locations, most of which are, are at the far edges of my empire, then they become the first line of defense. They become like buffer states out there. So if some other empire out there wants to invade, they've got to go through all those people out on the rim before they get to us in the middle. So Cyrus thought, this is perfect. I, I love this new policy I have. Cyrus also uh, uh, had a, a spiritual reason for doing it. He thought he was not just being politically wise, but spiritually wise. We know that Cyrus didn't worship the one true God. He believed in multiple gods of multiple peoples. He thought the different people groups had different gods. He believed that he, uh, in his own area, had his special god that he worshipped. And and he believed that that he had a good connection to that god. But his hope was that by by, uh, restoring these people to their homelands, and he thought if they go back and worship their gods, and we know this, by the way, from non-biblical sources, we have biblical sources, we have non-biblical sources about Cyrus. And one of the non-biblical sources tells us that the, one of the things Cyrus had in mind was this. He said, if I can get everybody to go back and, and they all live out their religions. And what he really wanted them to do, his hope was, he said, was if I can get all those people to pray to their gods and ask their gods to pray to my God, for me, I'm going to be doing really well. He believed that somehow if he could get all the God focuses, you know, all the different gods, of course, false gods, non-existent, but in his mind they were. If I get them all honed in on my God and everybody's praying for me, my God's going to love that and my God is, is going to bless me even more. He thought he would get mega doses of power and mega doses of blessing if he could just rally everybody in their religions to somehow be focused on him and praying for him. So Cyrus was motivated then to release and support uh, the Hebrews for these political and, and really selfish purposes. But we learn also right here that while Cyrus uh, was the one who initiated this idea, came up with this idea of what to do, and he fleshed it out and he put it into practice and he got a plan going and he made this happen within his empire, he, he really uh, was not the one who was behind it. We're told that that Uh, this plan for not just the Hebrews, but for the conquered peoples generally, but also specifically as it related to the Hebrew people, that that actually came about not from Cyrus himself, but that it was prompted by God and and that God had actually enabled Cyrus to uh, carry it out. Back in verse 2 where we read uh, the the, uh, proclamation, Cyrus said, listen to this, the Lord, the God of heaven, Now, the God of heaven, the Lord, the God of heaven, that's Hebrew terminology for the one true God. But he uses that terminology. He, He mentions this. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus himself in his proclamation says, I'm doing this because God wants me to do it. Now, on the one hand, we have to pause here and recognize a reality, and that is, again, that Cyrus wasn't a worshiper of the one true God, but in believing his, in his many gods, he believed that there was something out there that, that he needed to tap into and be connected with. We know that Cyrus truly believed that, that his rise to prominence and to power was, was due to something beyond him. He had started off as being sort of a, a minor leader somewhere, and then he kept advancing very, very quickly. And the next thing you know, like a shooting star that comes by, suddenly he, he's, he's prominent. Suddenly he's powerful and he's ruling over this whole empire. And, and he really believed, he sensed in his heart and in his mind, that, that you know what, there's something beyond me that's making all this happen. And and he really wanted to connect in spiritually. But we also understand here he doesn't really know the one true God. So when Cyrus is writing this, he's probably doing some political speak here. He's speaking to the Hebrews, and so he uses the, the language of the Hebrews. We shouldn't assume from this that Cyrus somehow came to know the one true God. We really have no evidence of that ever happening. So at this point, he's being a politician, basically, as he makes this proclamation. But he did have that sense that there was something bigger uh, than him behind this, and he was actually right because it was it was really the one true God was behind Cyrus, rising to this place of prominence, prominence. and it was the one true God who had actually prompted him, maybe had even helped him to to have this idea of what to do with these uh, these peoples within his land and and to help him institute this policy. most likely, He had never really heard much uh, from God's Word, never really knew much about the Old Testament prophets. But if he had, he would have known that 150 years prior to his own time, catch this now, 150 years prior to his own time, that a prophet of the one true God named him by name, named him by his name Cyrus, that he would play a role in future history. And he would play a part in the return of the people of Israel back to their homeland and the rebuilding of their temple. Isaiah chapter 44 is, is one place where we find this, the most prominent place where the word of God came and Isaiah delivered it. And in the midst of Isaiah delivering the word of God, God gave him this to tell the people. God said, here's what's coming. And, and God says this, it is I who says of Cyrus, there's his name 150 years before It is I who who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. In other words, I'll make an easy way for you to be successful. I will give you the treasures. Uh, I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I've also called you by your name. I've given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. God goes on to say about Cyrus, I've aroused him in righteousness and I will make his ways smooth. Again, clear paths for him to succeed. And he will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So it was God who raised up Cyrus to be a great king. And it was God who caused Cyrus to be at the right place at the right time to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish in that time and place. That fact is actually mentioned also again, by the way, in verse 1, which we read, when it says that Cyrus's proclamation was, quote here from verse 1, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was another Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah lived at the time when he was able to foresee that the destruction of Jerusalem was just around the corner. But God, God gave Jeremiah the word that that destruction would come, that people would be carried away into exile. But at that time... God uh, told Jeremiah, let the people know that the the exile itself will last no more than 70 years. No more than 70 years. Now, at the time that Cyrus makes this proclamation, guess how many years have gone by? Not quite 70 yet, but about 67 years have gone by. So sure enough, by the time Cyrus makes the proclamation and, and something happens, that all fits within the time frame. So it's God who's behind all of this. The decision by Cyrus to allow them to return home, that's, that's all because God made it possible for him to be there at that time and place. But it says that God did something more than just make Cyrus be there in that time and place. It says he actually worked on Cyrus personally. Verse 1, it tells us that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, it says. He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to make this happen. That phrase is found elsewhere, stirring up the Spirit in the Old Testament. And it always means this, that, that when God stirs up the Spirit, it means He moves someone to action. And so what this tells us is that even though Cyrus may have been at a human level processing, wow, what's politically expedient, what's good what's good for me and my kingdom, that it was God who was spurring him on, giving him ideas, helping him to formulate it, putting it all together, and making him at the right moment to get up and say, hey, I've decided, here's my proclamation. And that would be especially true regarding the Hebrew people. Understand that the Hebrew people taken out of Israel, in the context of the, of the, the affairs, the world affairs of that day, they were just a small little nation. Uh, 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 by population-wise, no great number of people in that nation. I mean, they, they had their thousands, but but they weren't. They weren't the, the greatest of nations, but here is Cyrus who takes a personal interest in them. And how did that happen? Because God moved it to happen. You say, well, why would God do such a thing? Number one, because he's sovereign. That just means he's the king. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of all kings. He's the one who rules over everything. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that he's not just the king, he's the, the active king of the universe. God is not that, that picture that some people want you to have of, well, He created and He kind of looked and thought that was fun. And then He kind of sits on the front porch of the universe, you know, sits on the front porch of heaven and looks at the universe and just kind of sits back and watches what's going on and sort of is mad sometimes and amused sometimes at what we do. No, that's not the picture of God. He's a very actively involved God in the universe in which He's created in this world that we know of as Earth, very involved in the affairs of, of human beings. He acts constantly to accomplish his plans and purposes. It's not just like we're his, his hobby, you know. Like he kind of created this earth thing. It's sort of his hobby. He comes and fiddles with it every once in a while and, you know, helps him ease his mind a little. It's not like that. It's that, it's that he is, is actually doing something important through his creation, through what's going on in this world. The scriptures tell us that one of the things that God does is he has plans and purposes and they revolve around the fact that he is revealing himself to his creation. He reveals his greatness, his power, his majesty, his goodness. And God is always at work in the world to make that happen so that people can come into a relationship with him and know him better and walk with him. That's why God does these things. He, he is active in this way. And part of this is we need to understand that that a more personal level is he's not just the active sovereign who's accomplishing the things he wants to do in his creation, but he is also a very loving and caring God who is always reaching out in kindness. And he does things like this because he is a merciful God. A merciful God. The the Hebrews remember it. They totally blew it. (laughs) They totally blew it. And you know what? Realistically, they got what they deserved. I mean, it was right after all those years. I mean, God had been so patient and they just weren't going to turn and they weren't going to turn back to Him. It was right for God. It was just for God to, to remove His protection. We might even say it was loving of God to do it because then maybe some of them at least would wake up to the reality of what was going on. But, you know, even as, as God was willing to do that to withdraw His protection, He still had a heart of mercy and kindness. And God still has that heart of mercy and kindness today. This is why God intervenes in our world today. Isn't this encouraging, by the way? I hope you're encouraged as you start a new year. Here you have God who's actively involved in our world. Not passive, but actively involved. Think about how crazy our world is. But you know what? There's someone who's overseeing it all. And we don't understand all the time why he allows this and doesn't allow that and do this and he doesn't do that. But we know that he's in charge and we know that he's acting for good. And we know that within that, that He's being merciful to us. So that if we've really blown it like the Hebrews did, whether that was you know, a one-time event or a long string of ways we've lived our life, He's merciful and He's kind and He's reaching out to us. God is not a God who abandons, but a God who sticks with. He is faithful. It may be that we abandon God, but He's one who sticks with us and does all that He can to help us to know Him and understand Him. It was because of all this that God stirred up Cyrus so that the Hebrew people could be delivered from their exile, so that they could go back, so that they could be God's chosen people again through whom He would actively work, through whom He would send who? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world Himself. God does all this for the sake of them and for the sake of us even today. That's why God stirred up Cyrus. And you need to be encouraged about that today, just how, how God is working things for good, giving us the opportunities to know Him. As you're starting your year, do you really have that in mind? I mean, everything I said, do you really have that in mind? First of all, do you have this understanding that, that God really is at work? And He's very, very active. Do you understand that He's active? in in the world and he's active right here in this community and he's active in the place where you live and you work. He's active in your neighborhood. He's active in this church. He's active in your personal life. Just in the same ways that you, you see and you read this book of Ezra, how God got involved. He's that involved in your life. The Bible teaches us that he's present, he's active and he's always moving and working. If you felt like, you know, God hasn't been with me, that's never true. That's never true. He, he's always been there. Now, maybe you weren't paying attention. Maybe you weren't with Him. Maybe you weren't walking with Him. But he, He's been there, and He's still there. And maybe even God had to, to let you suffer a little discipline. Maybe He had to let you, you know, just not have a little of His protection. But if He's done that, he's, He still had you in mind and His mercy in mind for you that he's ready to to bring you back to himself. And as you start the year, you want to to have that knowledge. You want to have that perspective and not lose it because there will be times this year when when you may wonder. you, You may doubt. And you need to say, wait a minute, Ezra shows me this. The book of Ezra, God's word tells me this. What we need to do, of course, is recognizing this is not just to go, wow, I'm encouraged, but to say, how do I stay on board with God then? What does it take for me to get on board with what God is doing in the world? Let's read on here a few verses in the book of Ezra. We'll pick up at verse 5 and see what happens. So where we left off, we just read the proclamation of Cyrus. Cyrus says, I'm allowing them to go back. I encourage people to support them. I'm with them all the way. Go Hebrews. Verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin were the, the two tribes that made up the last part of the last kingdom of Israel before the destruction. The heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, those would have been their religious leaders, arose. They responded to the proclamation. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go, uh, had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, the things that were in the temple that was destroyed, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he, the treasurer, counted them out to Shesh-Bazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number. And here's a list, you know, the official record here. 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Shesh-Bazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Can you imagine what happened that day? The people, the Hebrews, Now, first of all, you have to realize most of them by this time would have probably been the next generation of Hebrews because 67 years has gone by. So most of these perhaps are the children of the, uh, of the ones who were, who were forcibly deported. Maybe some of them were, were still alive. But there they are. They had no expectation of ever thinking they would even see the, the vessels that were used in the temple. And all of a sudden, Cyrus pulls it out and goes, well, here it is i got 5,400 pieces for you. Can you imagine as they just thought about that? And, and they, they took these things, it says, and they went back. They went back to, to resettle Jerusalem and to accomplish their highest priority, as we'll find out, their highest priority, first of all, was to get that temple rebuilt. From chapter 2, we actually learn that more than 49,000 of the Hebrews left the uh, empire of Persia, or I'd say the region of Babylon, and went back to their homeland moved back to Jerusalem. Now, we also know that that was not all of the Hebrews who were living in exile, but 49,000 of them uh, got up and went back. say, so well, why didn't the others go back? Well, you've got to realize, many of them, that's where they grew up. They were comfortable. They were resettled. Under Cyrus, they had more peace. We learn from, from non-biblical sources that, that many of the Jews who settled in that region after a while actually became prosperous there so, so many of them were comfortable. And they realized, you know what? If we go back, if we go back, I mean, what are we going back to? A totally destroyed city. Uh, not to mention that we, we've got to go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, on foot to get back there. We might survive that. Then we get back, we find a totally destroyed city. And we also find some people who, in the process of kind of... A, come in and homesteaded the land and they're not going to be that thrilled to see us. And so if nothing else, for that reason, a lot of people just said, I don't, I don't want to go. Some, some have thought that maybe those people were wrong, that they were actually disobeying God by not going back. But you know, the scripture just doesn't tell us that that was the case. That, that you know, deciding to stay there in Babylon was not necessarily a sin. But it also tells us that those who went back You say, well, why did anybody go back? But those who went back, went back because guess what? God moved them to. Did you catch that in in verse 5? Who arose and went back? It says, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild. So just as God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to make the proclamation, God stirred up the spirit of certain people to go back. He put it on their heart to do it. And they got excited about about the, the, the plan, about the possibilities, and they signed up. And, and the last verse there that we just read says, they actually went back and started up the work. And what we want to see in this is that this is how God works in every generation. And many of you, you may know this already, but maybe you need a refresher. This is how God works in every generation. In every generation, He has has tasks, he has plans that he's accomplishing. And he calls people in to be on board with his plans. And he stirs up people to to do certain things with with those plans. Now, sometimes uh, when he does that, he does that uh, by by giving people these huge, heroic, difficult tasks. And and they go out to do these things that, that other people aren't inclined to do. Their responsibility is to respond. And so here's what you need to be thinking about. God might do that with you this year. He might stir your heart to do something that is uncomfortable for you and that other people would say, I would never do that. But God may start working on your heart to do that because that's how God works. Remember when we were singing that last worship song, Hosanna in the Highest? The verse, I see a new generation rising up to take its place. God raises up new generations of his followers and always to rise up. And he has a plan for us in every place. And some of us, he calls out to do these unusual, once in history kinds of things. And when he does, well, the way we get on board with God is we go with him. We respond to him. But what if we're not part of that, that, uh, that group that God calls to those certain special things? Do we just ignore them? No, actually, we do exactly what we read of in the book of Ezra. What Cyrus himself told everybody they ought to do. And that is that we support those who go out. Verse 4 here. Here's Cyrus's word. Every survivor. In other words, all you people who, who were brought out of, uh, of Israel, who were still alive. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him. What him? those ones who are going back with silver and gold so that they have the, the financial resources they need, with goods and cattle, that probably refers together to the kind of animals, pack animals they would need to get back to, to their land, together with a freewill offering. The freewill offering was a, a, a special offering that was meant specifically not to cover their, their expenses for going back, but so that once they got back, they could actually build the temple again so let the men in that place support them with those offerings for the house of God which is in Jerusalem and verse 6 says guess what the people there actually did it all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold with goods with cattle with valuables aside from all that was given as a free will offering and then the next verse says and also guess what Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord you see that's how it works God raises up the generation. The generation is supposed to work together. Some get called out to special things. Those that don't need to support those who do. But at the same time, as we realize, hey, this is a model for us to follow, we also need to realize that that it goes beyond just these special, super daring events and ministries or whatever we might want to call them. That this model applies at all times when God is moving when he moves in less than unique and unusual circumstances. This should still apply. Because we know that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're told specifically in Scripture, every single one of us has a ministry. Because every single one of us has been given a gift, what sometimes is called a spiritual gift or a serving gift. Everybody has been gifted for some way to serve in the ministry of God. And everybody... We read in the New Testament, is supposed to be involved in that. And the way we do that is by working together in our congregations. And so, so we are all to take up the ministry. We're to, we're to sense the call of God as he reveals to us what our gifts are, and we're to put those into practice. And, and what are we to do then? Well, as we do that, we're to support one another. The biblical idea of the church is the church is a team where everybody works together. And not everybody has the same gifts and abilities, but when we work together and we support one another, then the ministry happens. And when we have the bigger picture of, well, not just this little ministry I'm involved in, but the whole ministry of the whole church, then, then we support the whole church. We give our, our, our offerings not just to, well, my little part of ministry, but to what the whole church is doing, because that's how God is working with the whole church. And there may be a a team over here in the church, you know, a sub-team that's doing this and I'm doing that. But if I can help them, I do that. And we work in cooperation and we work it together to, to make sure that we encourage one another and pray for one another and build up one another. Whenever we do that, we're jumping on board with God's incredible plans because you may not realize it, but He has a place for you to be serving in ministry. Some of you have found it in the last year. God's growing you up in these areas. And so... So you want to make sure that, that you're, you're jumping on board by saying, God, if, if you're moving, then I want to be involved in whatever you're doing. How do we do this successfully? How do we, we make this happen? Well, we decide right now, today. We say, God, whatever your top priority for me is this year, I choose this. Have you, have you ever done that in your life where you just said that generally? Maybe you have. But, but if, even if you've had, if you have, And the key this year is to say, God, whatever it is you want to move my spirit to, whatever, you want to stir up my spirit to something, God, I'm willing to make that my top priority because you're letting me know that's your top priority. If you want to have a great year, then make that commitment to God today. Tell Him that. Some of you in your heart right now can just even say it. Yeah, that's what I need to do. So whatever it is, whatever God tells me, If he wants me to stay on the course I'm on, I'll do it. If he wants me to change directions entirely, I'll do it. If there's something I can see the plan, I'm going to follow it, I'll do it. If I can't see the plan, but he's going to bring up a surprise, I'm willing. You want to have a great year, make that that decision in your heart right now to do that. And then when you do that, if you want to be successful, you're going to have to raise up some levels in your life. And the first one you're going to have to raise up is your level of awareness. Your level of awareness. How are, you, uh, how are you doing with awareness in your life? Are you an aware person generally? I went out running last night, and I was out by myself. I run a bunch of times a week. and Just keep it in shape. And when I go out, you know, I'll often I'll think through my mind. I'll choose different paths because I hate running the same way every time, you know? It's pretty boring, so I'm choosing a new path, and I got it all laid out in my mind as I start off. I know exactly I'm going to do something different that I haven't done in a long time. I'm going to go a different course. And I'm running along, and about halfway through my run, I realized that I had completely missed the cutoff to the, plan, to the path I was going to take. So, what am I doing here? I had an entirely different plan. Well, I was running along thinking about what's going on at church tomorrow, what's going on with my family tonight. had no awareness of where I even was. I'm just going along. And that's kind of how we live our life, right? It's like I'm going along. Everything's normal. Everything's good. God is saying, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got a different plan. And we're just like, yeah, well, oh, everything's really good. And then we're totally off track with God. There's got to be an awareness factor that we start living and saying, wait a minute. This is how God works. He's working in the big world. He's working in my little world. He's working in my life. So I've got to be listening to him constantly. I have to have this awareness. There's an old-time Bible expository that I was reading recently, and he used this terminology. He said, We live in a God-haunted world. Now, that's kind of a funny way. you know, Think of like ghosts haunting things. But he said, We live in a God-haunted world. That'd be pretty scary If God was bad, but since God is good, that means He is everywhere you go. He's everywhere you are. He's working. He's working in your home, even if you don't see it. And so what we just need to do is be aware of what's going on with God. Do you have that kind of awareness in your life? It starts with just having that expectation. Oswald Chambers, a long time ago, wrote, Do not look for God to come in any particular way, but do look for Him. Expect him to come. However much we may know God, the great lesson to learn is that at any minute, he may break into our lives. We're apt to overlook this element of surprise. So keep your life so constant in its contact with God and his surprising power that his surprising power may break out on the right hand and on the left. Always be in a state of expectancy and see that you leave room for God to come in as he likes. In other words, don't just think, well, I'll go to church. I hear a little bit about God today, and then I'll go back to church next week. I'll hear a little more from God. No, God's going to be moving in your life, bringing up circumstances, proclamations. Who knows what's going to come? And he's going to be directing and guiding you and moving you. But you have to be aware and say, every day of my life, God's going to be moving, so I'm going to be listening. Be aware that he's going to be moving in your spirit. What do you do when God gives you a thought? Sometimes we get a thought, you know? And we say, oh, that's just a crazy thought. I'll let that one go. But you know those crazy thoughts may be God actually saying, this is the way to solve your problem. Or this is the, the, where, the place I want you to go and serve. You never thought you would be a missionary, did you? But you don't know what I have in mind for you. You never thought you'd even go on a short-term mission trip. But I got one for you that's going to change your life. And you won't even be a missionary the rest of your life. But I got something that's going to change your life. And so what happens when God is doing that? Well, what we need to do then is say, wait a minute. Are those really crazy ideas or is this God moving? I wonder how many Hebrews, when Cyrus, out of the blue, said, hey, I'm letting everybody go back, went, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's that's crazy, isn't it? Cyrus would do that and then they just went back to work like, so? You know, crazy people do crazy things. And never thought about God was in it. Do you have the willingness to say, God, I want to be so aware that when I hear those crazy ideas, I'm going to say, wait a minute, I'm going to take a second look and I'm going to ask God and I'm going to see if he's moving in something. Up your level of awareness. Up your level then next of responsiveness. Make sure that if you do that, you've already said to God, like we said earlier, I'm ready to respond, God. Make that personal commitment in your life. And here's the way to do it. Start doing the little things you know you should be doing right now. Because how is God going to tell you and, and how are you going to be tuned into the big things He wants you to do if you're not even tuned into the little things that He wants you to do? So the little things He's telling you right now about the way you treat your wife or, or the way you, you, know, you handle this relationship or the way you serve in ministry, well do those little things and create that, that level of responsiveness in your heart this year. And then as you create that level of responsiveness, then make sure you increase your level of fellowship. Don't try to do these things with uh, these uh, these things that God is stirring you to by yourself, because as you see here in the book of Ezra, God wants us to do it together in fellowship with one another. Forty-nine thousand went back together. Who knows how many thousands more joined together in the support aspect of it? But it was all based in fellowship. And one reason why we don't get on board with God is we just try to be lone rangers. I'll do this, I'll focus on this, I'll do that. God says, no, get connected with the rest of the body of Jesus Christ, the church. Up your level of fellowship in ministry with others. And if you're already involved then say, wow, maybe I need to get my eyes off just the little area of ministry I serve, focus on the bigger picture so I'm contributing to everybody's ministry success, not just mine. And then last of all, you're going to need to increase your level of sacrifice. And maybe we'll get to talk about this in a future week. But you understand that, that sacrifice was involved. For those people who went back, they had to sacrifice in order to be on board with God. And those people who didn't go back, but who provided them the means to do it, they had to, to commit to sacrifice. They had to sacrifice things in their lives in order to be on board with God. And I want to tell you that, that there's never anything that God will call you to that's of significance that will not involve you making some kind of sacrifice. And if you're unwilling to make that sacrifice you're not going to be a partaker. So you've got to be willing to say, Lord, as I start this year, if it involves sacrifice, if that's what it takes to be on board with you, then Lord, that's what I'm going to do. And you have that awareness. A.W. Tozer said, the voice of God, it's a friendly voice, and so you don't need to fear it, Tozer said, unless you're determined to resist it. So don't fear that, that the voice of God might take you someplace wrong. He won't. He'll take you exactly where... You need to be exactly where you need to be. And so we want to close here just by standing together. Let's do it right now. As we stand together, we think about what's God saying to us today? Maybe the main thing He's just saying is, hey, listen to what you just learned. If nothing else, go away and think about these things. So, Heavenly Father... We, we, uh, we want to walk out of here with a renewed or even a new perspective on all these things. And we want, Lord, then, to be able to, to be on board with you with what you're doing. We want to be encouraged, not discouraged. Father, I pray for those with discouraged hearts who came in here this morning. I pray that the word uh, that we've learned from Ezra today would cause them to be encouraged about how you're moving. Lord, how you're moving in great, great ways in the big world and how they're moving in you're moving in great ways in the in the small areas in which we live. Lord, let them be encouraged today about your mercy and your grace and how you bring fresh opportunities, fresh perspectives. And Lord, we want them to be aware. We want our level of awareness to be high. We want our, our level, Lord, of responsiveness to be high. We want our, our level... Lord, a fellowship to be high, and our level of sacrifice to be high. So, Lord, guide us today as we, as we think through. Help us to realize what our level is right now and to know how to increase it for you. And, Lord, we'll begin to look and see what great things will you do as we step on board with you. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.